You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is Episode 7. back to part two of echolalia and asd supporting natural language development i'm happy to present to you the second installment of my conversation with marge blanc of the communication development center in madison wisconsin and in this conversation we finish up talking about the assessment slash treatment process we cover general language sampling scoring guidelines as well as such issues like when to provide a child additional gestalts as a prerequisite for moving them forward in uh, the process of language development. Now, if you haven't already done so, please download or stream episode six. That's the episode preceding this one. And as you're probably aware, you can get this program on iTunes in the podcast section in the iTunes store, or you can stream it directly from the website at conversationsinspeech.com. Remember that all the show notes from this show and the previous episode will be up at the website and Finally, just be sure to sign up uh, for email alerts on the show's homepage. That's kind of a new feature. And let's just get back to the conversation with Marge. Thank you so much again for listening. All right. So what I wanted to explore next, we talked about, I want to go down this road from assessment to treatment. And we talked about going to the home, um, the videotaping, getting a really good sense of who the, the child is and the dynamic within their family and siblings and establishing that trust to the point where they're coming back here and looking at those videotapes and looking at those first snapshots of a child, you're, go- you're, going-, you're going to be scoring, right? Using uh, your NLA, NLA paradigm uh, based on the number of your shots you're using, based on uh, mitigations, word isolations, correct? Well... Um, I wish. No? Um, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, actually, that first video, you know, you're just getting kind of a feel for things yeah. in the home. And then you're bridging to the clinic and learning enough about what a child does for physical activity at home and what what are his favorite movies and books and toys and things to do. And, you know, really a lot of what we want to find out is – can he jump on the couch? Are you allowed to jump on the couch? Can you flip over the back? Can you, you know, what what do you do for physical support? Oh. And what is the normal thing? What are the normal things that you would do at home for physical support? Because we want to set up the clinic when the child comes here for the first time to be very similar. Um, the way our clinic is set up is we've got a room that we can modify for a child who really is not particularly ambulatory or not safe in a very um, off-the-floor environment, and we set it up with pillows, and it's very contained. And he doesn't know there's anything else in the clinic at all. Yeah. And so we want to know what what's it going to take for a child to be safe? How many people do we need to make sure the child is safe? What's his vocal access like? Like if he's if he really like this little one I was mentioning, whose home we went to, and it took running around the house, you know, for ten minutes and turning him upside down before he could get his voice. Um, 
we want to know what that's like for him at home so we can maybe make that smoother here and get him to a place where he has vocal access much more consistently because there's no language sample we can get really Mm -hmm. until he has a little bit better vocal access. And I always say vocal, but obviously it doesn't need to be vocal. I mean, it can be whispered and it can be just mouth shapes. I mean, it doesn't have to be vocal and that's, that's, that's actually kind of a, a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Some of kids' best articulation is when they don't have to worry about coordinating vo- with voice, as oh, you yeah. know, obviously. But um, anyway, so it's really to make a transition to the clinic the first day. And we don't presume we're going to get a language sample, a real language sample, for probably a couple of sessions. That first session here is going to be, we hope, just enough fun that the child's going to want to come back, number one, and enough like a home environment that it's not in any way scary. And we're going to we're going to hope that we've learned enough about the child that we can figure out how to keep him keep him talking, basically, so we can get a language sample. Now, let's just say the child really doesn't have trouble with vocal access, and he's talking up a storm. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah. So if he's really talking up a storm, we still wouldn't do the language sample for an NLA scoring from that home movie because we don't know enough about how that compares with what his best is. Yeah. And, you know, using just like the standard um, protocol that any SLP um, would use or any scoring uh, procedure would use, we really want to look at the best. Mm-hmm. You know, it, we don't want to look at it at a situation where a child is saying the same thing over and over and over and over again when no one acknowledges it. And so he has to say it, you know, 50 times until somebody comments and takes a turn. It's like that was all one turn, you know, from his perspective until somebody acknowledges something, you know, whether it's really truly his intention, some of the words, you know, and unfortunately, sometimes it might just be, you know, to stop talking, not say that anymore. But I mean, um, that wouldn't be the child at his best. And so that wouldn't be uh, a legitimate language sample that we would want as an SLP to score anything. So we want to know where where is he going to be at his best? And so, like you say, that trust element is paramount. Without that, we're never going to get a really good sample. So we want him to come here. We want him to have fun. We want it to be safe. We want him to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not... And of course, we're keeping track of what he's saying. We're either taking notes or we have one of our graduate students taking a, you know, a real-time transcription or we're taping, going back and listening to it later. And we're going to have clues. I mean, definitely we'll have clues. But we're not going to score anything yet. Okay. And then we're going to say, okay, can we do, like for a SALT analysis, you'd want like a 12-minute sample. So we kind of keep in mind that we want whatever sample we get, we're going to be able to use it with other scoring protocol or protocols later also. So if we're going to do like a developmental sentence scoring or a DSS, ultimately, you know, we might want 50 utterances or 100 utterances. Mm -hmm. We might want 12 minutes, but, but those would be kind of the guidelines. Now, maybe it's going to take a full hour to get 50 utterances, or maybe it's going to take you know, a whole block of time to get out of one particular 
cycle of an utterance where a child is, you know, I'm going to say stuck, but that's not a very um, respectful way of saying it, it until somebody acknowledges, oh, ball. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And and by the way, sometimes we'll do just simply that. Mm-hmm. Like you don't get a clue what the child is talking about. You maybe understand some words and we might use the the loudest word to get like a little toehold in there. And but sometimes just yeah, oh yeah, that ball. And then just some sometimes I'll just write it down. Mm-hmm. Like to give it some legitimacy, even if I don't have a single clue where it's from, what it means, why he's saying it, why now but oftentimes just the simple fact of writing it down and something that says, I recognize there was something important there. And not just blathering on. I mean, if if my turn was, oh, I see that you find that word very important. So the word ball, no, 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 no. That's not a that's not an equal conversational turn. But something that says, Oh, the ball and you know, and then start to repeat yeah. a little bit of something that might have been that gives you a little bit of a clue, and then maybe it's going to take that in the second session, something like that in the second session, that maybe by the third session you can actually take a language sample that you say that's going to be legitimate. I mean, we probably are recording by the second session, yeah. and maybe it's going to turn out to be consistent enough that you could use that for the scoring but maybe not and maybe maybe even the third session isn't gonna give you everything you're looking for you might say oh i could hear him do a lot of gestalty kinds of things you know because we had a particular set of toys here Mm -hmm. but if we didn't have those toys if we could have gotten him, you know, onto the trampoline and jumped more and gotten out of that particular little um, idea, might there have been some other things? Yeah, you actually touched upon something that uh, you mentioned in the book. And we, you, a couple of times, I think you've alluded to this, the idea that you have to listen for that emphasis and in, in, uh, intonation. And I, I've, it's funny, I haven't thought of it uh in quite that way until I read it in your book about the idea that when you're listening to a gestalt that sometimes they focus on that one word like Simba going to you know and you have to listen for those words as uh, as key indicators you know they're glomming onto that one maybe single word or, or passage within a larger gestalt exactly and and you're hoping you know I mean we who might think oh is he getting ready to mitigate? You know, has he break, has he broken that down? And so we might wish that he would just say Simba, um, but he's not quite to the level that he can mitigate all by himself. He needs a little bit of our support to mitigate completely. And so you're describing that exactly because mm-hmm. we weren't supposed to understand all those other words. Those other words were supposed to just be gone from his perspective. And I think as parents, especially, I think parents are so used to, you know, who the child was last year. And and last year, maybe he didn't say it like that. Maybe he said the whole line. And everybody in the family is used to him saying the whole line. And everybody's got a whole routine about that whole line. But a year later, Maybe the child isn't doing that anymore at all. Mm-hmm. And, and so everybody, you know, wants to go back to that old gestalt or that old script or that old whatever. He didn't want to anymore. 
You know, he wants to get out of there and take Simba and move it into his life. You know, move Simba into the play that's going on right now. Like, do you have a Simba? Because if Simba could come in here right now, we could solve this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, assuming you have a number of sessions under your belt and you've seen the kid, and now you're ready to go ahead and sort of take a look at his language and on his hopefully his best day or her best day. Uh, you now you're signing. If I'm if I read the book correctly, if I understand the process, you're going to assign. Uh, you're going to take a language sample and assign a value to each utterance. Correct. Correct. As far as where it falls on the um, on the path towards uh, self-generated language, and so you have the scale from one uh, going up to. What is it, six? Well, actually, there's only three stages before... There's actually really two stages Mm -hmm. before you get to what we think of as being typical language. There's three stages that have to do with breaking stuff down. And so that's the important piece that understanding the Gestalt process brings to our ability to use language development you know, again, with these kids. But you're right that NLA does acknowledge that there are levels that are generative. And so basically, um, stage one is the full-blown gestalt, like this little boy I was just talking about last year. He Mm -hmm. used the whole thing. Okay, so if he gets to stage two and can mitigate bring pull out pull out just the part that he wants with a little bit of help that's stage two and then when he can pull out the single word just the name simba and just walk in a room and say simba elmo Mm-hmm. But they've come from, you know where they've come from. Yeah. And you know that he's not just starting his language development today. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we are often fooled. We often think that all that other stuff was nothing. Mm-hmm. And that today he walked in the room and he said, Elmo, Simba, Fork. Well, there was a lot of work that got to got him to that level. And you could say, well, what what would be the danger in thinking that his language development started today, besides underestimating him and his intelligence and all the work that he went to, the danger would be that that we need to remember that Simba is not that Simba. Simba is that Oh, I'm pointing and yeah, I realize this is, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is not the toy Simba that, that you've Never got on your floor over yeah. here. Simba is the live Simba in the movie. And I know he's going to become a superstar and he's got his father's memories. And, you know, it's huge. It's All huge. That, that encapsulates. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And that also is what differentiates this gestalt language processor from an analytic processor is when this, when a little one who's two years old says, Simba, you know, or something, you know, that's just about that thing sitting on the floor that somebody has labeled Simba. Simba, She doesn't know where it came from. She doesn't know why Mm -hmm. I say she, and that's maybe not quite fair, but whoever says that, you know, it's just about this referent there on the floor. Mm -hmm. But this child who has mitigated out a phrase about Simba and then extracted the isolated word Simba has a whole wealth of information and knowledge and feelings and, you know, and I think... Big semantic web. Yeah, exactly. And so that we need to know also because he's still gestalt in his brain. 
His brain has not become a little analytic processor. Yes, he's able to do language in an analytic fashion now, and he's able to, you know, add two words together, and he's able to, and that would be like a stage four, I mean, a stage three is isolating the single word and actually putting together Simba Elmo. Mm-hmm. That's all stage three, because it's it's a mitigation down to a single word, and then once you have a single word, then you can do something with it. Mm-hmm. So that's all stage three. It happens almost like in a nanosecond, once a, a child can get down to that point. And so you think, you know, if you didn't recognize all the stuff that went into it, that language development began that day. So then as he, as he goes into grammar, then that's stage four. And it's also stage five with more advanced grammar and stage six with all the grammar of the English language. Now, obviously, NLA didn't invent any of that stuff. NLA didn't invent anything. It just codified the process of, of being able to identify the stages where a child is operating at any one moment. And yeah. um, so that's the other thing, is that there are multiple stages that a child is dealing with. And so the child who is mitigated down to the name Simba... Um, is going to go back to other Gestalt sources for other information as well. So he's going to go back to other new movies and new stories and new experiences and go through a similar but faster process with some of those. And that doesn't have to happen always, but his brain is going to want to go there. I mean, he's still got a very active, alive, right brain storytelling mind. Mm -hmm. So... uh Going back to the uh, the progression, you when you're taking that language sample, uh, you're going to be looking at the average at which this child is. So you might have, and I think you've pointed out in your um, in your book that you can have a child who's still using stage one and using some stage three, some isolations. But what you're trying to do is get that average um, using a broad you know language analysis figure out where that average is and trying to start at that level. Would that be accurate? Well, that's, that's, that's pretty close, as a matter of fact. Um, you do look at what percentage of his utterances are at each stage. Yeah. And sometimes there's more than one stage in a particular utterance, yeah. even. Oh, and, well, yeah. even within an utterance. So say, yeah. say like I, I said, um, the Lion King part one and a half. Okay, well, that might be my little gestalty phrase. That might be a whole chunk, yeah. if you will. It's not a gestalt. It's a mitigation, but it's used as a whole phrase. So if I'm taking a language sample on me and I say, my favorite is Lanking Part 7-3 coming in October of 1998. Watch for it on... Okay, so it, let's just say that's my utterance. And um, so I would get credit for generating the first part of it, and then I would get this, you know, stage one for all the rest. Right, yeah. And so, um, so as you're scoring with uh, the the scoring protocol, you would score it as part and part, and it can be even three parts in the same utterance. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could go into an example, but I think you see what I mean. And so then, when you're looking at the overall, you're looking at not just whole utterances and saying it's at stage one, it's at stage two, but you're looking at, as you said, adding it all together and saying, so 50% of the time he's using a gestalt process, let's just say. Mm -hmm. And 
Now, what we also want to know is what's he doing the rest of the time? Because if he's 25% of the time mitigating pretty darn well, then that's really very optimistic. And we want to make sure that he can move from those gestalts to more, a higher percentage of mitigations. Okay, what's he doing with the other 25% of his time? Let's just say that he's um, self-generating a couple of things. Well, you think, gosh, he's isolated I, he's isolated you. That's wonderful. And so so you say, yeah, but it's only like 10% of the time. And the other 15%, it was, you know, just um, saying, hey, you know, or well, you know, and you knew it was sort of like a mitigation because you knew what was going to come after well. But at any rate, um, the long gestalts, um, were still 50% of his utterances. And you think, boy, that's a pretty high percentage for the potential that he's showing at these other levels. Mm-hmm. So what gestalts can I give him that are going to make it a little easier for him to mitigate? Maybe we don't need any more you know, introductions to movies that tell us when it's going to hit the theaters. And Maybe we need ones that match his interest level, but maybe are a little bit easier to mitigate. And of course, we have to present it with great, you know, gusto and intonation yeah. so that it's fun. Actually, you know, you made me just think of something in your book um, that sometimes we have to give a child more gestalt before we can move up the ladder. I had it took me a long time to wrap my mind around that. I'm like, really, you want it? And uh, when when does that come into play? Well, it just. Depends on what the gestalts are. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a that's a big part of it. Let's just say that. Um, well, let's say that this this child we had that had fifty percent of his utterances, or fifty percent of the time, he was using pretty, uh, pretty unanalyzable um, chunks. Mm-hmm. That would be the the definition of a gestalt. Um, so, let's just say that. Um, Half of those were just about the same, like coming in 1994, you know, or coming to a theater near you, or, you know, brought to you by, you know, so more like announcing kinds of things. Yeah. Like you could say, what's the intention here? Oh, the intention is to get you very well regulated and happy and excited and enjoy, you know, what's coming next. So you think to yourself, gosh, half of his gestalts are all about announcing stuff and making it fun. What could I give him that would be just as interesting, but a little bit more usable? Like, um... I got a great surprise, you know, or, you know, well, if you look in the box, there's going to be something for both of us to play with or, you know, just making that up. But um, things that we can control a little bit better because the stuff that he's already got in his head from a movie source, we can't control it now. We can help him break it down, but we can't really get rid of it. We can try, 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 and a lot of people used to, you know, but it didn't make it go away. Mm-hmm. It just kind of postponed it till a time when it was okay to say it. Um, so that would be a time when we want to have more gestalts because there's a reason that he hasn't mitigated more than he has. And and looking at that particular language sample that we're just, you know, conjuring, you know, it's partly because the gestalts just aren't 
very good for mm. mitigating. And not very useful, yeah. Um, so going down that, uh, well, going through the developmental ladder, I guess, so it sounds like you're going to get, you know, work with those percentages and support language based on where they are, you know, within each stage. As they start to get down to that path, past the stage three, and to, you know, where you can start thinking about grammar, that's where the DSS, developmental sentence scoring, comes in, correct? Mm -hmm. Or whatever one anybody is familiar with. I particularly like DSS. Do you see it used anymore? I, to be quite honest, I haven't <laughs> used it since graduate school. And uh, I mean, I mean, someone might say shame on you, but <laughs> I mean, I, I actually have to say what, what I tend to use over the years, I'm a big salt user. And so I've analyzed children's utterances that way, and I found that very useful. But I haven't used the DSS. Right. Well, actually, I like to use both yeah. for different reasons. I love the SALT norms because then you can make comparisons and sure. and you can look at some. You can look at a child's language sample that doesn't necessarily appear to have something that is going to be c comparable mm -hmm. with other children, and then you find out it actually does, and that's really useful. Um, but I love DSS. Partly because it's so um, true to kids over time, and it it just always rings true, yeah. and it and and it it puts things in a developmental order so that you can show a family very quickly and easily that at DSS level one all of these things are going to happen, and so when we are presenting language models to our children, i.e. talking to our kids, because as gestalt processors, they pick up on the language around them. So we don't want to just use, you know, this particular structure, or, you know, we don't want to use just, you know, uh, it's a ball, it's a house, it's a car, it's a dog, you know, because they're going to learn that as, you know, a script. Right. And so what we want to do is say, it's a ball. Oh, there's the ball. Oh, we got to get a ball. Oh, I, I can't find the ball. You know, we want to do a whole lot of different things all at the same time. And DSS gives you, and you know, it's one of those things you can put on your refrigerator as a parent and say, you know, this is the green zone. The, I want to do all of these things. Yeah. And I don't want to get into any kind of a rut here because yeah. my child as a gestalt processor is going to pick it up as a gestalt. Yeah, for instance, you talk about not jumping into pronouns too quickly. I remember that's I have that from the book. Um, but I, just to uh, go out and get into a broad view again of the whole uh, NLA paradigm, I find one of the things that I find so fascinating and so refreshing about the way you approach language is that it's not a it's not meant to be a brand name. And when you're using something like the DSS, something that's been around for many Ever. years, I don't know how long it's been around. I do. I was there. <laughs> so, but I mean, the point being is that all you're doing is you're just taking the research that's out there on the functions, you know, what is echolalia? What is it used for? And you're just you're coalescing it nicely with what we already know about child language development. There's no magic. There's no, there's nothing else to it. There's no program. There's no steps. I love the fact that you, in the end of your book, you're just imploring people, just get started. 
just do something. Well, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And the thing is, is I never would have written the book had somebody else done it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I, I just knew back in those days when Barry Prezant said, collect your longitudinal data, SLPs. You know, I just, I was kind of hoping somebody else would. But, um, you know, over the years, we did. And I just, you know, it took me probably 10 years to write the book because, you know, we have a clinic and I didn't really have a lot of time to, to spend on it. But yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, there's nothing, nothing invented here. Absolutely at all. It's just taking all that we knew as SLPs and putting it together in one place. And I think the other thing that, that it does do, I will say, is that, you know, as SLPs, we always heard that echolalia was functional and that echolalia communicated. I mean, even people, I mean, the autism community in general knows that. But so what? They don't know what to do with it. And so we're still back in the dark ages a little bit in terms of what do we do about echolalia? Well, I don't know, but maybe let's teach him some functional phrases, you know, which isn't acknowledging the the functional value of echolalia. So, I mean, you're right. That's that's all I wanted to do was put it together in a place that people could pick it up and and add it to what they already knew and put it together in a way that was was logical. So, I have to ask you, what took you so long to write a book? Oh, because we have a full-time <laughs> clinic? Oh, because I'm an SLP like everybody else? <laughs> yeah, I, I would just, I mean, the only way I could, I'd have to take, you know, the time we have off in August and go cloister myself and, yeah, yeah and try to remember from six months before what all my post-it notes meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. And um, I hope to do future episodes with you. We can touch base and continue this discussion. Well, thank you. I think it's a wonderful thing you're doing. And it's fun just to to, to take it in a light way, like you say, and um, not to have a presentation, but just talk about it. Exactly. You know, I, I want to talk about the chances are if I have a question, if I'm interested in going off in a different direction, the listener probably does as well. And so I'm hoping right. that, you know, that's what they get out of this. Right. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Marge Blanc from the Communication Development Center so much for uh, being a guest on the show. Uh, I I have to say it was just an amazing uh, opportunity to go up there and to to get to know her more on a personal and professional level. And I I hope to have her back on the show at some point in the future. Um, Drop me a line with any thoughts you had about today's episode. You can reach me at jeff at conversationsandspeech.com. Don't forget to sign up for the email alerts on the homepage of the website. And if you're feeling generous, please feel free to rate the show in the iTunes store. Thank you so much again for listening and take care.